0: Hi, this is Keith Kefchen, and you're listening to Dollars and Drivers, a podcast that allows leaders and outlet to discuss what drives them and their distinct way of succeeding in life and business. Today, we're going to be speaking with Mike Cahill, founder of HREC, one of the top brokerage firms in the hospitality space. And Mike's a, an old friend, and it's a rare opportunity you get to talk to one of your teenage buddies who's made it uh, big in the industry. Mike's going to be talking about a number of concepts that I was very intrigued by. One, the transparency that they have in their partnership and their way of having conflict resolution within an industry brokerage that is particularly fraught with uh, those kinds of troubles. He also talks about his role as a platform leader that he's no longer a day-to-day broker, but really his role is one where he is supporting all the brokers through his platform leadership. And then finally, uh, some real words of wisdom for young folks about not being uh, counters. Uh, Mike talks about, again, that the, the money will follow, work hard, play hard, enjoy what you do and the money will follow. So uh, have a listen. Uh, really enjoyed, again, talking to my good friend, Mike Cahill. Hey, Mike. It's good to have you here. Maybe we can get started by talking about, before we get into the questions specific to the podcast, just how's business? I mean, everyone's been significantly affected by by COVID. I assume your business as well. But uh, what are the maybe the couple of quick takeaways about what's happened to the hotel industry and maybe brokerage in particular over the last nine months?
1: Yeah, I mean, hotel brokerage is probably down overall transaction levels, probably 85% around the country. So you're looking at a macro uh, factor of a guy that's trying to run a best-in-class firm, but macro factors when 85% of the users of your service kind of drop off the radar screen, it, it has affected us. Um, how we deal with it is is interesting because we actually closed our 44th transaction of the year still. Wow. Um, okay. um, closed that yesterday. So the good part about it is it's kind of every sale has a story right now. It's somewhat interesting or somewhat different, but we're able to kind of, Go from April, which was the first month in the recorded history of the firm where we had no revenue, to actually thinking we may actually make some money this year. Um, but it's it's been a journey. I mean, uh, 2020 is one for the record books, different from 2009 and 2010.
0: Are you guys a lag business like our business is, is consultation? It's not brokerage per se, but it's it's consultation all the same. And we tend to be a real lag business. I'm still collecting money that that I was owed probably in Q1. So it hasn't been as maybe as painful now, but six months from now, I could see hmm, it's that kind of lag. I, have you seen that as well? or I, I don't know if I describe it as a lag. It, it'll
1: tend to happen at the same time that activity level picks up because um, there may be a lag in terms of us getting our money but not a lag in terms of our activity. So for example, you know, right now, I think it it took the first three or four months for everyone just to kind of get a grasp on what hit us. And then at that point, um, a lot of owners or potential sellers, whether they're banks, lenders, servicers, private owners, really had to come to that realization of reality. This is where we are. Let's make some hard decisions and let's figure out where we go from here. And for some of those owners, especially for, I think, the assets that we've transacted on, they were assets that were troubled pre-COVID, okay. where people made the decision, hey, we wanted to sell this pre-COVID, can we just get out of it and let's move on? It's time for for a different type of owner.
0: Got it. Well, maybe we can you know back up, because you know, the, the podcast is really about not only dollars making money and, and being successful, but it's also about the drivers, the things that motivate you, your business to succeed. Can you talk about, you know, how did you get into this? How did you get on this path in the, the first place? What do you believe the, the motivators, drivers are for your particular success?
1: Yeah, that, that's an interesting question. I think it, it really, it, I think where I ended up here is more linear than people would think. It goes back to when we first met as 18-year-old football recruits. I was simply an, an 18-year-old excessively large male from Missouri that got recruited to the Ivy Leagues for football and uh, came down. You know, I was getting recruited by Dartmouth, Harvard, and Cornell, but I just wanted to get an undergraduate business degree. Penn didn't recruit me, so Wharton was out. You know, not a possibility. And Cornell said, "We have the next best thing. It's called the Cornell Hotel School." There was there was no epiphany that everyone likes to tell you that they are working as a banquet waiter waiter in a seasonal resort, and they fell in love with the industry at seventeen, and that was their passion. I just wanted to go to business school, and uh, in the Ivy League, back in 1980, you either went to Wharton. Or you went to the Cornell Hotel School. Those those were your really only two options. If you had a Dartmouth, Harvard, um, you had to be a history major and get a master's.
0: Yeah, I guess thinking back on that, you know, MBAs were just starting to happen. But it was really after us that MBAs became sort of the rage. Maybe that was late '80s, or early '90s, even. So that probably makes good sense. So the the, the right path. You happen to stumble on it, and you've been on that road ever since. Uh, what other kind of major decision moments have you had in your career?
1: You know, I I really think it comes back to the the first decision moment I had was I at the end of the Cornell Hotel School is like a lot of people you you work in restaurants get you into the Cornell Hotel School you take your classes after a couple of years I started taking my finance and investment collectives and i realized that's really where i should be mm-hmm. and then it finally came back to of all the job offers i had as a senior which if you look back remember it was a pretty good year in 84 it was, we we're i think we headed in a recession a couple of years later but pretty good year for cornell grads and i think the first decision was i had got offered uh, by jack welch to go with general electric as was kind of their two-year finance program, traveling the world. Right. And I had a choice between doing that or staying in the hotel industry. And it came back to, I remember, I was on like my seventh interview for GE. And I was at some washing machine manufacturing plant in Louisville, Kentucky. And they had this team of people that, that I'd be joining. And they all had the same white shirts on, the same white ties. And they were in a room with the latest computers trying to figure out. They said, our goal is, is we need to shave seven seconds off this manufacturing line. And wow! And I just had exciting this vision of myself where I was like, you know, one thing I learned is people in the hotel industry are fun. Mm-hmm. You know, the hotels are fun. The people are fun. It's exciting. It was funny because when GE did, they actually called me up. Never forget, I was a DU. They called me up and they said, "We've got to have a uh, post-turn down interview with you." They go, "Mike, you're the only person in the country to turn down this job really? this year." And Jack Welch wants to know, "What were you thinking? You want to stay in the hotel business?" I mean, it was it was a little bit of an attitude. If you really go back to the '80s, I think, and even my parents had a bit of an issue. It's you know, you don't go, you know. Hotel management, a lot of people viewed as a vocational thing. You don't really go to college for it. You go and learn the business and work your way up. Okay. Um, so there's was a little bit of that attitude, but never look back. I just, the people we deal with, the places we go, the businesses we're involved with, it's exciting. It's fun. It's probably similar to, to you in search as opposed to placing accountants, You know, placing exciting people in great dynamic jobs.
0: I really don't think I'd be doing what I'm doing outside our industry if it was just if it was our industry and other things maybe. But the fact that if I was just placing lawyers or accountants, I know I wouldn't be doing what I do for a living. It's it's a combination of I enjoy it and the industry that I'm passionate about. But uh, in thinking about uh, Dr. Jim and I are, are writing our second book and. We've done the lofty 30,000 foot stuff. You know, you got to have a mission. You got to have your values set. You know, your your why, you know, why do you do what you do? But we've also been finding out there's plenty of people that have these grandiose plans and goals, but rarely do people wind up on the other end of that as the success that they really, truly want it to be. And so we're wondering, is there a playbook, thinking about it in sports terminology? Does Mike Cahill, does your organization have a playbook of success? Uh, Is there a way uh, of doing business uh, that distinguishes you from others? Yeah, I think today, and just for a
1: background, is in a non-COVID year, you know, HREC over the years has transitioned from a consulting firm Uh, to a pure brokerage firm. And so, for instance, in 2019, typical year, we sell about a billion dollars worth of hotels a year, and we have 30, 35 brokers and 20 locations around the country. When I decided to shift fully from consulting to brokerage, I was about 40, 42 years old, and uh, I'd fallen into the niche of actually working for a lot of the brokerage uh, firms out there, writing their books. Okay. And then I said to myself, you know, I got a uh, $20,000 check from one of the brokerage firms and they said, hey, uh, we couldn't have done this without you. And then I saw they got a $300,000 check that <laughs> I, I may not be the sharpest tool in the woodshed, but maybe <laughs> I want to shift over toward away from the attaboy check to, uh, you know, <laughs> to, to, to the better check. Right. And I spent about a year and a half studying other brokerage firms. Um, and all their models had good points and bad points. So HREC, fundamentally, our playbook is we're different. And we're different in two ways. We're different in transparency and teamwork. A couple of the brokerage firms that made me job offers, I went in there and I remember one of the head honchos you know, was like beaming with this false machismo of, you know, look at this, every single broker I have working for me competes among themselves and they compete with other brokers for business, if it was pride. And I remember saying to myself, you know, if I'm starting out in this business, I actually want to join a firm that has some support, <laughs> you know, some teamwork, you know, because I'm going to need some help. I don't need you know, guys to bounce ideas off of. And I said, you know, that's, that's just not the environment I'm looking for. Other guys were very database driven on owning clients and very possessive and not sharing data. And I really came away from it saying, God, I, I really don't like any of the existing brokerage models. Um, when you talk to other brokers, it's, it's funny when you, you know everyone says teamwork, but no one really practices. They hide data from each other. They hide contacts. They compete with every broker in the firm. So right. the first thing, fundamental principle of HRC is called transparency. Because in life, and especially brokerage, which is highly competitive, and there's a lot of money out there in terms of compensating people, you can never get rid of conflict. We're all humans, we're all different. You're gonna have conflict among your team. One thing we promise guys when they join us is transparency, which means every Monday morning, every deal, every broker is working on the firm, is in a spreadsheet, and is distributed to everyone so that no one can ever come back to us and say, hey, you know, this is my client. You've been dealing him with like two months behind the scenes. So I tell the guys, I can't promise there's no conflict, but I can promise you'll never go more than six days without being able to get on the phone and saying, let me call this other broker. I'm kind of working this guy too. And then it also comes off to the clients because there were stories from other brokerage firms where two groups within the same brokerage firm would actually show up in a pitch, yeah, yeah. where they're trying to sell a listing <laughs> and neither one and they would meet each other in the lobby from the same firm. Wow! You know, I said, that's just not a good way to conduct business. So transparency to not reduce conflict, but to bring conflict out earlier. So you can get on the phone and work it out with the guy. Hey, maybe let's work this deal together. Maybe you do have a better relationship.
0: Do you have a um, conflict resolution system as well? Is that part of the playbook or is it just you got to go to this Monday meeting and th- that's where conflict is resolved. Well,
1: we don't really approach it. We usually say we don't interrupt the Monday meeting because we really try and go through in a typical year. um, Everyone's so busy. We go through 100 deals in 30 minutes. You okay. know, it's boom. The analyst, analysts are on there, the capital markets team, and we're going project update status and going through it. And I tell you guys are trained to listen. If you see something you're not comfortable with call the other brokers first. Don't go up to to me or Scott Stevens in terms of trying to resolve it right there or publicly resolve it. Um, One of my personal things is I hate conflict resolution through emails, which the world has gone to. Is I literally, these people that sit at home, have a cocktail and start writing these extensive emails, laying out a court case over a conflict. I just tell them, stop. Set up a conference call, set up a Zoom okay. call. Let's get on the phone. Let's hammer it out. Remember, the best negotiation is typically when neither side is 100% happy. That means it's pretty much a successful negotiation. And talk it through. We'll nip it in the bud. We'll figure out what's in the best interest of the client, and we'll move forward.
0: So, so that's the opposite to a book title of Jonathan Tisch's Win Win Everybody wins. It's like yours is like reality. Both people win, maybe not fully, but.
1: Yeah, it's not win-win. I think it's most of the conflicts we resolve. It's like, it should be titled. I get it. I'm okay. Are you okay? Let's move on. (laughs) You know, that would be the more realistic title for the book um, because I think that happens because if one guy wins out outright, it means the other guy probably has bitterness and resentment, but uh, at least you want people to understand.
0: Yeah, you touched on compensation, and that's you know an area of real interest to us because some people say that your compensation scheme drives behaviors. Sometimes it doesn't. It's just innate human nature. How do you guys grapple with this kind of all-or-nothing comp that, I, at least I equate with brokerage.
1: There's good and bad about it. There, and there's different models. We have stuck with the what the old school brokers call the eat what you kill model. Okay. But the challenge is to take the eat what you kill model and then culturally still have a teamwork model where you don't have that paranoia, backstabbing, hiding things from other guys because you're on, you know, you kill what you eat model. And that has really been the the major impetus that we have through the transparency and teamwork. And one of the things I'm most proud of is that there's two ways you do that, is you do it through the people that you hire and what their personality traits are, and then the framework that you provide them in their work environment. I can control the framework and I can take a stab at when we hire them. Um, One of the interesting statistics we have is that over 75% of our deals are closed by internal teams of two to three brokers that have elected to work together. They've elected to work together. Yes. They don't dictate. No. Okay. They don't dictate that they elect. And that's one of the things I'm proud of, that they realize that at the end of the day, client satisfaction, earning the fee, it's often better to have piece of something than all of nothing works. And I think that's different. I think it comes off to our clients, Um, because it's not uncommon, you know, maybe within ethos as a a search firm, where we all go to the same conferences, we all look at read the same iPods, we all have the same company database, multiple people in your firm in ethos have to have varying degrees of relationships with certain clients, their perception of their relationship may be right or wrong, but there is an inherent conflict there. Um, but if you can get them working as a team on a deal split and say, listen, you know, you work as a team player with other people in the firm, you may be able to close three times the deals at a lower risk profile than trying to do everything yourself. solo."
0: Got it. It often used, maybe too often use the term strategy. Do you have a very specific strategy? Is it constantly melding or is it, again, fairly linear? Like you've set this framework and let the group decide where they go, how they go, what they do?
1: I really think, you know, when, when I look to where I've evolved and what my role is now, and my role is really managing the platform and house and providing what the brokers need. So I think the strategy is not, I think there's macro strategy, which would be, you know, everyone looking to me in April saying, what do we do at this point in time? You know, what is the platform going to do to provide opportunities for us to get listed? And then there's more of the micro strategy, which is our philosophies of transparency and teamwork and allowing that to work. Because if you have the right entrepreneurial guys, um, it's interesting, kind of relative to your book, I think all 30, 35 of our brokers probably would be on their own. They're all very entrepreneurial. Right. But they realize to achieve the success that they need, they need to be part of a team and a group. And they reconcile to that. And that's why they're part of HREC mm-hmm. as opposed to being off on the own. So mm-hmm. I think these, these guys inherently are entrepreneurs. So you really have to provide the platform and framework to let them do their thing, guide them, manage conflict and provide them the,
0: the tools that they need to do their job. Maybe taking a, a turn here, you know, I think in, sports analogies. And I think about Brady and Belichick and the history that they've had of success and so forth. But you always hear, boy, they always came out at halftime where they had a new game plan you'd never seen before. They adapt at halftime and beat you again so that you can never sort of stay ahead of them. They always seem to be ahead of you. How do you guys adapt? is, Is there, again, a system? Uh, away, or is it just innate that you're always adapting? I
1: think it's innate. And the reason being because brokerage is a very, very competitive field. So you're constantly, you're never sitting back where it's like, no one ever says, here's a contract for five years. You can sell all our hotels at this fee. Um, You're competing for every deal and listing. So I think there is a constant reinventing Mm And so example would be in April, I saw the writing on the wall from past cycles, and I wanted the firm to steer into what we call our runway capital program, which we're very active. Um, other people call it rescue capital. Um, I still think the greatest marketer alive is that called this product life insurance and not death insurance. So at HREC, we call it runway capital, which is really providing a lifeline to hotel owners. Um, to get them through this tough time to better action. So, you know, April and May, I personally, you know, I'm in the office 10, 12 hours a day, and we made over 60 calls to private equity players, personal calls, conference calls to develop a stable of private equity to actually take hotel owners, and the need is now becoming prevalent. Um, we probably have 10 active runway capital deals out there right now. So that's macro platform guidance. It is trying yeah. to get everyone to coordinate, everyone to reach out to attorneys to make sure we're in uh, in front of the workout bankruptcy attorneys, coordinating that, making sure we're coordinating that we're in front of the special servicers who are taking back hotels, coordinating that program. So I think those are macro strategy. Right. But then I think if you lay that foundation platform, then you can leave it up to the guys who are entrepreneurial and, and allow them to... Uh, do what they do best is get listings and execute on them
0: as a business leader you're now founder you have your own business Where, where do you go for advice mentorship any of those sorts of things that maybe you had earlier in your career when you're on top of the the heap where do you go or is it just lonely mike at the top of the hill
1: yeah, I don't, you know, I, I read a great book, the, uh, what was it, The Loneliness of Leadership?
0: <laughs> Thanks for some, the plug.
1: <laughs> there was some book that I read very copiously and there's a lot of good points that I think you have to reach out once you're in our position. And I think there's two ways you reach out. For me, it's, I have a lot of guys who are very senior brokers who've been around a long time
0: mm-hmm.
1: and it's internal. And uh, one of the things a mentor taught me early on was, I think in my early 20s, you're still trying to prove yourself so much, you talk too much and you don't listen. And he said, you need to listen more. Just really listen to people. So I think internally, you want to really listen to your senior brokers and not email them, but get on the phone with them. And I try and have a call once a week with most of our major guys just to see what's up what difficulties they're encountering. So I think you have that network through senior guys you respect. And I think externally is you have to force yourself to reach out to other people. And I think similar to you, we're fortunate enough with the Cornell Alumni Network that a lot of our peer group are senior leaders, are CEOs, CFOs, entrepreneurs, and presidents of companies. And I try and make a point to get on the phone with them and say, hey, just wanted to talk base and, and talk with other guys about how they're struggling and uh, how to motivate them, how they're motivating themselves. I think that's helpful. And that really comes from the relationships you've, you've built over 20, 30 years.
0: Yeah, fair enough. Last question, you know, back to the Brady Belichick uh, analogy, uh, you'd probably consider New England uh, the Patriots a a dynasty. They've been called that. I'm sure there are plenty of other sports dynasties. How do you build a dynasty in business? What would you foresee or what would it take for HREC to be a dynasty? First of all, I know I'm probably not the
1: best guys to to feed off your buzzwords. Um, I I really have never liked the term dynasty and I never had a goal of building a dynasty. I think you I think you start off in my early twenties. I just wanted to make enough money to to have a career where I could build a family and make sure my kids' college educations were paid for. And then I think you just work hard. And I don't really ever get much joy of knowing that there is a dynasty out there. I, I think that I just go to work every day. I work hard, have a strong work ethic. I've always said I got to do 10% more than the other guy does. Don't let yourself fall into the trap of, hey, this is, this work product is close enough for government work is you got to push yourself. And, and I think people either have that internally or they don't. I've never been driven by money itself or material goods. I've always felt that if you simply work hard and strive to be the best in your field. And my goal was say, I wanna be one of the top people in the country in a very small niche, hotel real estate, that the money takes care of itself. Um, and I think HREC really has grown mostly organic over the years, um, where people have kind of come to us and said, we love what you're doing, we love your platform, I'd like to, to be part of it. And, and we bring them on. Um, and had very little out attrition over the years in terms of people leaving us. And
0: if they did leave us, it typically- That says something. I mean, that clearly is is a message, uh, Mike. And you may or may not be surprised that most people don't really think dynasty is the end game. You could probably go talk to, to Belichick himself and he was like, I just want to win every year. <laughs> <laughs> I got very specific goals and that's, I, I I, I'm not worried about the accolades after the fact. So I think you you might or might not be surprised that a lot of people in your position aren't really thinking about that. Uh, so that's not uncommon. Yeah, I think part of the problem, and I've had uh, ex-business partners,
1: I think there's a characteristic of certain people, and I call them counters. Okay. And all they do is count the money every day to judge their personal self-worth. Um, I've always frustrated my partners because I often don't know what the numbers are. I just really look at our checking account and say, is it growing or is it getting smaller? And then I just focus in on trying to do a good job every day. And and it's worked. It's worked to grow the company and
0: it's worked to, to create some personal financial success. It sounds like a hell of a good message for young people coming into our industry. You can imagine what they're struggling with. You have two college graduating kids. Uh, I mean, it is a a struggle right now. I've got two older kids that are going through the same kinds of things, Uh, but it sounds like a hell of a message to just work hard, stay focused, and things will take care of themselves. But anything else you might, uh, words of wisdom for a college graduate in this craziness? Yeah, it's interesting because we're out there interviewing
1: interns, we're interviewing college grads, and I have, uh, my son is finishing up college, doing his last semester right now, and my daughter's, you know, at business school in her junior year, and she's in the internship program. So it is working hard, being the best at what you do, and then the rest will take care of itself. And also, I would say, don't get caught up in the ego of who makes the most money right out of college. Look at what foundation you're laying because you really have 40 years ahead of you. And I think your 20s afford you the best opportunity to take risks because you don't have a family and a mortgage yet and to be able to relocate and to be flexible in terms of your compensation. And I think, you know, don't Judge your whole success of your life on, quote, what your income is your first year out of college, because I can guarantee you a lot of the guys that are making really great money at 30 and 40 um, didn't focus on that. And that's really what you're looking at is I I say you have certain hurdles and you really have your 20s, uh, what you want to achieve. And I think the 20s for you really need to figure out what you're good at and what you enjoy. 30s, you need to start making major career moves in terms of laying the foundation, so that in your prime earning
0: years and your your 40s and early 50s, you're actually cranking. Got it. I appreciate your time, Mike. As always, your candid words of wisdom, unadulterated, unfiltered, uh, and thank you for that. Thank you for this opportunity. Take care, Bob. Thanks, Keith. Thanks for listening to Dollars and Drivers. Until next time, this is Keith Kefczik signing